We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. For me as a chef, there's so much nostalgia in a dish. And like, I think a lot of dishes are starting to be lost, at least in my own culture. I know that there's things that people my age don't know how to make, but like my grandma knows how, but like those recipes don't get passed down um, or, the, you know, it's written on a random piece of paper and there's no measurements. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Melissa King is a top chef icon, and she's also much more. The champion-turned-judge is also the host of Tasting Wild, a far-out outdoors cooking show, who still finds time to be in the kitchen with pop-ups across the country. It's so fun to have her on the show to talk about cooking with her old top chef cohort, plus career-defining gigs like appearing on Sesame Street and cooking for the Met Gala. Melissa King, this is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're visiting New York. I have to know, do you have any fun food plans while you're in the city? Um, I've been here for about a week. So I've actually, I've been to a few places. I went to Double Chicken, went to Paros, uh, which is a friend of mine from Top Chef, George Pagonis. He just opened that in Tribeca. Um, and I've also been here for a pop-up dinner series with Chase Sapphire, um, it's the Seaport Food Lab over at the Tin Building. And so I've been here for about three days cooking away. What are the highlights from the menu that you're doing there? We, um, it's really a Chinese and Italian mashup dinner. And what we did was we prepared a Chinese and Italian inspired menu. I made scallops with prosciutto XO. Mm. Um, I also, I partnered with two other chefs. Uh, Chefs Mei Lin from Top Chef as well, and Sylvia Barbin also from Top Chef. Um, so each of us kind of broke down and took a different course. Mei Lin made braised Wagyu beef cheeks with a Cantonese curry mm. on top of braised daikon and a side of polenta with a ginger scallion sauce. Uh, Sylvia made a beautiful butternut squash capoletti that had a scallion oil and Szechuan pepper walnuts and a little Parmesan fonduta. I love all of these dishes. Did you guys put your heads together and, and talk about how they would all go together? Or was it just kind of like you're bringing your best and you're going to see how it goes? It was a little bit of both. I think, you know, when I was thinking about who I wanted to do the dinner with, you know, these are friends of mine that I've cooked with before. We've all obviously competed against each other as well. And uh, I wanted us to each kind of showcase a little bit of our stories and who we are as people and where we come from. And so being a Chinese-American, it was really important to me to kind of, you know, put myself on that plate. And so um, it was a, it became a collaborative effort once we started kind of digging into the details of each other's dishes and, and what we each wanted to prepare. Um, so we kind of worked together to add different garnishes and find ways to kind of elevate the dish. Definitely. And when you're cooking with your top chef folks, do you feel competitive with them? <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is like people always think, you know, we're so competitive against each other. But really, I think when you're competing on the show, you're you're just competing against yourself, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, in these settings where we're doing, you know, these pop up dinners together, um, it's 
it's all just fun and we're we're having a good time just kind of creating and you know really finding inspiration through each other and the the foods that we are deciding to present together. Definitely. And I think that's very classic to say that you're competing against yourself, but it's true. And also when you have people that you're cooking with that are bringing their A-game, I would imagine that it would also inspire you to kind of dig a little deeper and show up for them as well. Absolutely. And that's, I, at least I feel really proud of what we've created together at the Seaport Food Lab. Um, you know, we really came up with some beautiful dishes that I think were creative and inspiring and dishes that I would, you know, if I had a restaurant tomorrow, I would put that on the menu. Yeah, and I would be there to eat all three of those <laughs> back to back. <laughs> so we're talking about competition. I have to bring up the fact that you hold more challenge wins than anybody else on Top Chef. Do you think your family is surprised to know that? Or do they're like, yeah, Melissa is going to come out on top? I mean, I hope I hope they're surprised. I, I think they're just really proud, uh, especially the second time around watching. Um, I mean, I'm proud of myself for just being able to get through it all because it is an extremely stressful competition to be in. But um, yeah, I think I crushed it. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely did. Do you have any tips for handling the stress and the pressure in the moment or you just kind of power through? You know, honestly, you are throughout the competition, you're so sleep deprived, you're exhausted. For me, I was taking trying to take it a day at a time. Um, I was meditating throughout any breaks that we had and just sort of trying to decompress from it all. But I think slowing down was something I had to keep reminding myself and like to stay focused. Mm, Can you talk more about slowing down? You know, uh, at least like for me in my daily life, I try to, even though I'm so busy throughout my work life, but I try to take moments to escape and like be out in nature, like go for a walk, even if it's, you know, 10 minutes, like try to just do something for yourself to slow to slow your mind down. And I find that to be quite important, even like whether I'm competing on Top Chef or any situation, you know, it's really good to just take time for yourself. Yeah. You know, um, I was speaking with Clancy Miller this morning, who has a new book for the culture out. And she said the exact same thing as her advice was to to actually live life and be in the moment. And it sounds obvious, but I think it's a reminder that we all could use in many ways, you know? Yeah, I think so many, particularly chefs, we're so like head down, focused on the food. We dedicate our lives to what we do. And we have to remember there is life outside of a restaurant or outside of your passion. There are, there are other fa- passions out there. And so for me, it's not, o- it's not always just food. It's film, music, fashion, all these other categories that I can tap into to allow my creativity to expand. Definitely. Maybe not on TV, but when you're cooking at home, do you listen to music? Oh my gosh, all the time. I'm like always listening to music. I'm a big uh, Spotify user and Spotify fan, and I have a couple playlists that people can follow, but... Okay, not to put you on blast, but what was your most listened to Spotify artist last year? Oh, do you remember? Positive, it's a uh, drama. And I feel like <laughs> anyone that knows me knows that I'm obsessed with this band called Drama. Um, What's the vibe? Uh, it's it's crying in the club music. If I if I'm gonna <laughs> label it as anything, it's crying in the club. Uh, emotional, you know, the lyrics are can be kind of ha- they I guess they label themselves as, as happy sad music. And would you? But I love to that? it. I like thrive on um, emotional music, and even if I'm not sad, I just I don't know. I love being in my feelings. Yeah, and that's yeah. cooking music for you too. It is. Well, I guess when I'm in the kitchen 
it's like a little underground hip-hop or old-school hip-hop. Um, sometimes I could, all of a sudden it becomes like Madonna and Whitney Houston. So I have a bit of range. <laughs> I love all of those. I love that together. I think for me, when I'm cooking, sometimes I'll just do one album so that I have a sense of pace and flow. And Miss Education of Lauren Hill is kind of always oh, one of those so albums. Good. So good. Classic. Okay. So you have good music you're listening to. I'm curious, like when you are going to compete, do you do anything to prep? Do you do practice challenges? Um, well, when you compete, you have no idea what they're going to throw at you on the show. So it could really be anything. So I remember when I was, you know, prepping before I went on to my all-star season. Or no, actually, it was my first season, season 12. I had no idea what the show was going to be like. And I was on YouTube Googling things like how to butcher an alligator or how to butcher a turtle. You know, like things that I just like thought they would throw at us, but they obviously never did. Um, so I prepared in all the wrong ways my first season when I went back to compete on All Stars. Um, I did, you know, test out different recipes or just things that I made sure I showed up with a plant-based dish or I had a gluten-free dish um, in the back of my head because you just, again, never know what they're going to throw at you in a 30-minute quick fire. Yeah, that sounds like maybe a better approach than watching how to uh, butcher alligator videos. <laughs> Although now I kind of want to go look those up after this. Oh, it's this. wild. <laughs> do you think you could do it? I'm sure. I mean, I've I've done all the research. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to go. The knives are in the bag. I, I have one under the desk right now. <laughs> really? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so between the two seasons, do you have any dishes that stand out as if you were going to have a restaurant, this is what you would put on the menu? Yeah, certainly the um, scallop with prosciutto XO dish that I just did at the Tin Building um, with the Seaport Food Lab. That one was a dish that is so special to me. I, you know, we were in Italy from for the finale, and we were at a prosciutto factory, and we had to come up with a dish using prosciutto. And for some reason, I just really wanted to make an XO sauce, and I was thinking about these flavors that I grew up with. You know, I'm Chinese. I'm Cantonese American. My family's from Hong Kong. Exo sauce is such a classic condiment, but it's oftentimes made with dried um, scallops, and it has a little bit of cured ham or cured meat. And so I decided to reverse that, and I made, you know, the bulk of the sauce with prosciutto, and served it on top of a, a seared scallop. But it was also because I couldn't find any of those ingredients in the middle of, you know, Tuscany. Um, all those Chinese ingredients weren't available to me, but, you know, we had batarga. We had, uh, you know, instead of Thai chilies, there were Italian pepperoncinis and, and chilies. Um, so I was able to kind of create these substitutes that actually worked really beautifully. And so I felt really proud to be able to present that dish this week. Definitely. And I think it's so cool to think about the way that constraints can lead to the kind of innovation that you just wouldn't be able to necessarily do if you had everything available to you at once. Exactly. And that's, I think, the beauty of the competition or, you know, Top Chef in general for me has opened up my culinary brain and it really, uh, you know, gets you to create things that you never thought you ever would. Definitely. And I want to ask you about the show Tasting Wild that you do. Have you always um, been drawn to the outdoors? I have. Yeah, I love I love nature. I love finding inspiration through, you know, just literally walking through the Golden Gate Park or just anywhere um, that's outdoors. I think there's just so much beauty to it all. And so being able to do Tasting Wild um, was such a, in a way, a challenge, but also I was just excited to be a part of 
these adventures and to um, see what I would come up with at the end of each episode because I had to create a dish based off of what we were foraging. Definitely. If you could like redo one of those experiences and bring some friends with you, like which one would you want to do? Oh, they were all so cool. Um, I think the Big Island, that one was really incredible. Um, just being on top of a volcano and also I was cooking on a black sand beach and we had fish from a spear fisherman. Um, so that one I thought was a really beautiful way to just sort of capture the essence of the island in, in, in my dish. And your friends would also probably like want an excuse to get to go with you. And then we get to just hang. Yeah. <laughs> so now do you like to cook outside? Um, I mean, I do. En- I've always enjoyed outdoor cooking, cooking on live fire. I think like any chef loves an excuse to do that. <laughs> Definitely. It challenges you in so many ways. Um, and a lot of the show for Tasting Wild, I was cooking outdoors on live fire. Definitely. Yeah. So I've been seeing a lot on on Instagram lately. Maybe you know the name for this technique. I can only describe it as people that have been kind of trussing up vegetables and meat and then just hanging it. And hanging it. Over a fire. Yeah. Have you yeah. been noticing? I feel like this is a trend that I'm seeing. I see it all over. Um, I think, you know, Francis Melman. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of just start and he's like the coolest guy (laughs) you look at his Instagram and you're like wow I want to do that in the middle of you know South America yeah just go to Argentina exactly have you done that kind of technique before um more so camping or like my brother-in-law has one of those brio uh fire pits at, at, at the house and so yeah we'll connect a little spit on it but I haven't done it to that magnitude um, that Francis does. Yeah, I have not. But I feel like every time I see one of these clips, it just looks so like peaceful. I want to yeah. be like a vegetable like swinging over the fire. <laughs> I feel like that'd be a nice way to live. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all these different experiences in food TV. I'm curious what you think makes for good food television. I mean, there's I feel like so much has been done from Top Chef and competing to is it cake? (laughs) You know, there's such a range of uh, food television out there. And I'm actually excited to see what's next because like I obviously, I guess if I thought of that million dollar idea, then I'd be creating that show right now. But, um, you know, there's there's it's exciting just to see that food TV has become what it is today. Yeah, that it continues to expand. I think Mm -hmm. of like when I was growing up watching the cooking demos was probably the only kind of food TV that there was in some kind of way. And now there is, is it real or is it cake, which is not even (laughs) food TV. It's kind of like sleight of hand magic. Oh, absolutely. I'm like, how? Like, is that cake? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, actually, the podcast mics in the studio are are cake. We'll cut into them at the end. (laughs) So. If you wanted to forecast Crystal Ball a little bit, what is something that you'd like to see more of in the food TV world? I I personally love storytelling through food. I think, yeah, again, there's competition cooking. There's shows like Is It Cake? But I would personally love to see more storytelling and like who are the people behind it and what is their story? What is their journey? Um, Just for me, I've always wanted to like hang out in a kitchen with a bunch of grandmas from different countries and like learn from them. And so honestly, that would be a show I would try to create or pitch is um, there's so much for me as a chef, there's so much nostalgia in a dish. And like, I think a lot of dishes are starting to be lost, at least in my own culture. 
I know that there's things that people my age don't know how to make, but like my grandma knows how, but like those recipes don't get passed down um, or, you know, it's written on a random piece of paper and there's no measurements. Yeah. Um, So I would love to just see again, yeah, more storytelling through food. Well, I would definitely watch the Melissa King Grandma show. Have you been to the Grandma Restaurant on Staten Island? I've heard about it, and I need I need to go check it out. Have I you also, been? No, I also haven't been, but it's something that we keep on talking about on the show because I think a lot of people have admiration for the older generations and the recipes that they have. And I know personally, like, whenever I think about getting older— Getting older in the context of cooking is something I'm really excited about. Is like if I'm pretty good at making something now, 40 years from now, I'm going to be just as good as all the other grandmas. So it's something that I'm interested in, but I haven't ventured over to Staten Island yet. I mean, that's the way I was thinking about food is like I think of my own grandma and the matriarchs of my family. And like you look at kitchens and it is heavily male dominated or it's getting better. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, there's some sort of beauty in like the passing of knowledge to each generation through a dish. And like you said, like, will it be as good, you know, 40 years later or 20 years later? Um, cooking is all repetition. And it really, I believe it does get better with time. Yeah, I think it has to. I think whenever someone I know isn't excited about getting older, I'm always like, but don't you want to be an amazing cook? Yeah, exactly. I do. (laughs) So I have to know, what was it like appearing on Sesame Street? Because that's like a life goal of mine. That was like the best day of my life. (laughs) Okay, tell me me everything. (laughs) I had so much fun. Uh, Just first of all, yeah, it's Sesame Street. There's so much, again, nostalgia attached to that. And uh, when I was on set, you know, there's there was Cookie Monster as my sous chef and Elmo. And we were debuting a new Muppet named Ji Young, who um, is the first, you know, Korean-American Muppet. Um, and so that was just a special, I think, moment for me as a chef to be able to, like, literally, I was, like, watching Sesame Street and learning English as a child and then flipping over to Julia Child. And I was, you know, five years old. And now I'm at my age today and I'm able to actually be on Sesame Street. So it truly was a dream. And I was also, we were making Asian foods and we were able to sort of show a bit of, you know, my culture and and just to represent the Asian American community was really powerful for me. Definitely. What were the dishes you were making? We made um, dumplings and uh, dapoki and just yeah, all these like we're just really trying to introduce children to the beauty of Asian foods. I love that. Yeah. And and this is maybe a weird question, but when you are around the Muppets and they have handlers, obviously, do you make eye contact with the Muppet or with the person? When you're there, you don't even notice the handlers. Like, really? You are so immersed in staring at, you know, the like Elmo's eyes and like talking directly to them because they're just so in character. And again, like the second you hear their voice, it's like you're transported back to your childhood. And it's like, oh, there's Cookie Monster. And, you know, we're just hanging out in the kitchen. I'm like, it was so cool thinking about that. Yeah. It's it's like meeting a celebrity, but um, also an alien kind of at the same time. I was freaking out the whole time. If you could go back on Sesame Street and do another cooking demo, what would you do? Um, I would love to teach kids about noodles and rice and just kind of, yeah, again, cook again with Cookie Monster. I think um, he was he was the best sous chef. He ate all my food. He just devoured the entire table of 
dumplings that we had. And they weren't even cookies. They weren't cookies, but he was all about it. And so I, again, I just, I love getting kids excited about food and in, in any way that I could share a bit of my knowledge and my background with them. I'm all for it. So Definitely. And on the flip side to Sesame Street, I know that you curated the 2022 Met Ball Gala menu for adults um, alongside <laughs> Anna Wintour. How did you approach that? Yeah, it was a it was a collaborative effort um, with Marcus Samuelson uh-huh. and uh, a couple other chefs. And so we each took a course and um, yeah, it took a couple months to actually develop the dish that I ended up creating uh, for the first course. And, you know, Anna wants is very particular about what she wants. And I think that's a good thing. And so it was really helpful for us as chefs to be able to plug into, okay, we need to make something that is that represents the Met theme, but also represents a bit of ourselves as chefs and also, you know, can be plant based. And so we were I found it to be almost like a Top Chef challenge. I was about to say, it's a similar yeah. constraint. So <laughs> what was the the final dish that you ended up with? Um, I made a hamachi crudo with a citrus broth. It had um, a Szechuan chili oil and a yuzu kosho olive tapenade. That sounds so, so like good. A little bit of everything, bringing all the beautiful flavors of America all in one dish, but keeping it light and refreshing for the first course. And then the um, the vegan option was compressed melon instead of the hamachi. Cool. Yeah. And then you got to go. How did you feel about getting all dressed up? Was it so exciting? That part was wild. I, like, didn't realize we'd also get to attend the Met Gala and uh, the Met Ball. And so that was um, really a once-in-a-lifetime experience that I truly will never forget. It was amazing people watching. <laughs> yeah. Who did you see? Did you watch anyone eating your dish to see if they would like it? Oh, every. I mean, I sat at the table, was watching everybody around me just to see, like, okay, do they like this? Do they enjoy it? Are they having a good time? And yeah, a lot. there was a lot of great feedback all around. Yeah, I'm sure everyone liked it. I guess I'm wondering if there was one celebrity that you were like, oh, I really want to know if, if Anne Hathaway is going to like this or something. <laughs> I mean, I was sitting at the Vogue table, so I was sitting kind of with Anna Wintour's team and all of them, you know, they just kept giving me all these great uh, compliments and feedback about the dish. So definitely it's cool. So are you cooking at home at all these days? Um, I feel like I'm always, I mean, I'm one of those chefs that does cook at home when I do get downtime. I love cooking for my friends and hosting dinner parties. Um, I'm, you know, from San Francisco and I know through the pandemic I was bread baking and, you know, had my sourdough starter and got pretty obsessed with that. So I'm always trying to yeah, cook at home as much as I can. Winter is a big time for me for cooking at home, but I often find myself in what I feel like is a TV competition situation where I have like one friend who's vegan and then one friend who can't eat chickpeas, which is what I was going to serve the vegan. And it's hard for me to figure it out. Do you have any suggestions for like a very flexible, maybe like winter group cooking moment? For winter? Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot right now. You're putting me on the spot here. I mean, I come from San Francisco. All my friends are like vegan or gluten-free and all these things, but... Um, I think a lot like a big spread of dips and like charcuterie and and then also trickling in all your veg. Um, that's always just gives people options from that point on. Um, even, you know, at the Seaport Food Lab, we created like this Chinese Italian charcuterie spread and I mixed in a little bit of like 
Asian pocky sticks and like dried squid onto like this beautiful salumi board that had a little bit of everything for everyone and they could mix and match um, pending their diets. So that's always a good starting point. Honestly, the tip of putting Pocky on the charcuterie board to me is fantastic. <laughs> I feel like you could wrap up a salami around one of the like Absolutely. If you're feeling adventurous. Is that crazy to say? No, I, that was the vision was to take a little bit of prosciutto and wrap it around the chocolate Pocky stick. And like you have a little bit of that salty sweet action going on. It's like a little rose almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Well, I'm curious if there's anything coming up over the next couple months for you that you're excited to be working on that you could share with us. Yeah, so um, I'm a Chase Sapphire partner, and I will be, you'll catch me at Sundance, so I'll be passing out some food in the Chase Sapphire Lounge over there and curating a couple special bites. Um, Are you going to get to sneak away and watch some movies also? I hope so. Yeah, that's always the plus Yeah, Sundance. Um, and yeah, we'll have a few more activations throughout the year. Um, I, I know for Pride, we're planning something pretty fun. Can't fully talk about it just yet, but okay. We'll wait until June to find out. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) that's so great. Um, And to close today, I want to play a little like rapid fire taste check with you. So I'll give you some categories, and you can just tell me the first answer that pops into your head. Okay, this is always stressful. No, it's going to be fine. We can take a deep (laughs) breath together. (sighs) Okay, go to like bodega convenience store snack. Um. Fresh juice, to be honest. Mm. Go yeah. to like Asian grocery store snack. Asian grocery snack. Oh, uh, Kimpop. If I'm at like H Bart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, favorite cookbook. I really love uh, April Bloomfield's Girl and the Pig. Girl and Her Pig. Definitely. It's a solid one. Okay. Favorite food TV show. That's not Top Chef. <laughs> I was about to say Top Chef. Sorry. <laughs> no. Um, I can't watch the bear. It stresses me out. Um. <laughs> I was going to ask about that, actually, but I think that most of my my food industry friends can't watch it. I can't watch it. It, it. it truly, it triggers me. It brings back a lot of trauma and PTSD. I don't know how anybody watches it, but I'm sure it's a wonderful show. I mean, it's a testament it stresses to quality me out. <laughs> that, that it's so stressful that you can't watch it. Exactly. It's so realistic. You know, the, they've really done such a great job with... Like every detail from like the way he wears his apron and the brand of knives and his knife roll. It's so, so accurate. Okay. So you've seen enough to know that it's too accurate for you. Yes. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Okay. Is there a, food, <laughs> a different food TV show that you want to shout out? Um, I honestly don't watch too much food TV. It's okay. We can say Top Chef. Yeah. I'm going to say Top Chef. I'll be nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Favorite uh, Bay Area restaurant? I love Rintaro. I just have such a great meal when I'm there. It's, Do you have a go-to order? Um, I oftentimes, or, yeah, I always order the sashimi. I order the um, carbonara, the udon carbonara, and all the yakitori mm-hmm. sticks. Okay, most underrated piece of kitchen equipment? Underrated. I, a microplane. I love a microplane. Me too. Yeah. Uh, most overrated ingredient to use on a competition show? On a competition show. Yeah. I was going to say foie gras or just, but I guess that's not always on a competition show. Um, But just generally, foie gras, I feel, is like so overrated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, favorite thing you ever made on Top Chef? 
The Hong Kong milk tea tiramisu is a pretty solid one. <laughs> Sounds so good right now. Okay, dream TV show, food or otherwise, to appear on. I'm going to say the bear. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I talked about it, but it'd be kind of fun to be on there and be like the chef that's like screaming at everyone. Yeah. Even well, though I'm the nice person, you know, in real life, but it'd be fun to just play a completely different character. I'm going to manifest this for you because we've had a couple members of the bear on the podcast. So maybe <gasps> they're listening and they yeah, want to cast if you're you. you're listening, cast me for the bear. That'd be great. Okay. And I want to be like a mean person, you know? You want to be mean. Yeah. I want to be like the screaming Gordon Ramsay chef. Okay. I don't know if they have a character like that, but I mean, I think they're sure try- they do. They're trying to like move away from it on the show. It's like a healthier <laughs> workplace, but maybe you're like the rival restaurant across yeah, the street. Exactly. Yeah, that that's that's what I want. <laughs> okay, and to close a fictional food scene, like from a movie or a book that you wish you could eat. I feel like the movie Julia and Julia, just like everything in there looks so good. <laughs> and I was like, I just I just want to eat like everything in that film. Me too. Shout out to their food style. Or Willy Wonka. The chocolate uh, river. Like the old school Willy Wonka. Yeah, the chocolate river and eating like the little candied flowers and that little wonderland that they had. Yeah, definitely. Well, Melissa, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you all for being here. For We're recording live at Red Eye Grill for a few months before you are publishing your debut cookbook. And I just have to say, you're in New York for the very first time. What are you doing? I mean, just like running around like I'm in a movie, you know, it's this <laughs> cultural landscape that I've watched uh, for years from afar. And it's, it's pretty exciting. I live deep in the depths of Dorset countryside. So it's a pretty big shift. And I love the skylines, the buzz, the... People and the food has been incredible. Like straight talk, you 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 live in Dorset, which is kind of it's not the Cotswolds. It's not like just like a couple minutes out in London. It's like out there. I'm gonna say it's like kind of like Iowa, kind of like rural Oregon because you're right on the ocean and you work out there. Your farm is it's a working farm. You aren't a gentleman farmer. You're not a, a just a chef with a weekend habit. You you love to cook what you grow. So let, please introduce our listeners and here today a little bit about your kind of point of view as a chef and a farmer out in Dorset. Yeah, so Dorset, Dorset is a really interesting English county. It's, um, as you said, like far from London, but it's, it's very rural. It's an old, old um, part of the countryside where the kind of people there who, who are there have been there for generations. So you've got like willow weavers, basket workers, hedge layers, um, potters, uh, you know, it's it's that kind of part of the countryside, and and it is just a patchwork of beautiful, beautiful farms. It's very steep. Um, it's very lush and fertile. It rains a lot, and it is it is like an electric electric green. We live on quite a special farm where the lady who lived there before us, she 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 really believed in nature and in a time where the world has become more and more industrial and farming has intensified. She really refused that so where my neighbor has you know his hedges are cut clean and the fields are like immaculate right up to them and uh the cows live in in the barns you know we live on a farm where the fields are full of wildflowers um you know the the woodland is absolutely stunning and like humming with birds the hedges are are not 
you know, yeah. trim things. They're like 30 meters wide and collapsing on themselves. It's like what we think about when we think about the English countryside. Yeah. We, yeah. we hear like the Led Zeppelin songs and we think about that, yeah. It's like Lord of the Rings um, meets the good life. And it, it, we, we live in this kind of beautiful secret little valley and the, the farm is nestled into this little nook, like a little teardrop yeah. bowl. We'll talk about your reels and your Instagram and your and your TikTok, how seafood plays such a big role in your, your content. But as a chef, you worked in Noble Rot and you were working the line and you decided you wanted to move out to Dorset. What do you, as a chef, what are you, what are you actually pulling from the earth out there? What are you cooking with? I, I mean, you name it, I grow it. It's, it's that kind of thing. Um, we, we, the main source of the farm is sheep. So I have a hundred sheep. The sheep are this wild Scottish breed from the Hebrides, which is the very north of Scotland. So they, these islands, you know, like, like way out in the ocean. Um, we actually keep them to what's called hoggett, which is where you let lamb live a much longer life and not eat it as a baby you eat it as a more an older animal um so they you know i, I really believe in like long lives for animals uh chickens i go out every morning and grab a warm egg from the coop for my breakfast every day you crack it into the pan to poach it and it literally doesn't change shape from the shell that it was in um and then i've got the goats who climb everyone's cars and eat all the buttons off my clothes and all my shoelaces uh, and they're a lovely symbol of, you know, for me, the reason I keep them is because they really show that relationship you can have with an animal. For me, it's always been about not telling people about animal welfare, but just showing that yeah. relationship. You're not like one of those influencers. Like you're not one of those guys. Like you are so thoughtful in the way you think about your, your, your first spiritual, just getting to know you and reading your book. But like you pop on Instagram, like you, like people know who you are in both around the world and in the United States. So like what drew you to this platform in the first place? And do you, do you even like doing it? <laughs> I feel like you're almost like hesitant to do it sometimes, but that makes it so good and authentic. That's why we love it. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah. So, so I, I was working in restaurants and made this huge leap of faith to move to the countryside. And it, you know, started by buying these pigs. Um, and I think, the, the lessons I was learning and the journey that I was on, all this stuff I was being taught by nature and these animals just felt so, so poignant and so special. And I felt like, how do we not all know the, the brains behind these animals and the sensitivity and the characters? It's so hidden behind this veil. And it was really a want to just share that relationship and share the journey, not with an ambition of influencing and all this stuff it was more just telling a story I, I was also on my own in the countryside oh you were you were going solo during the pandemic yeah just me and my dog um and my pigs and and the goats and all that so it was you know when you've got those people to talk to you and you're, you've got something to share it just gave a real you know a, a lovely purpose to it and i i do i do enjoy it that it can be a uh you know, there's some aspects of Instagram that can be quite soul destroying and I'm not a natural like, you know, click, click, yeah. click. I haven't even seen your phone this whole trip. Have you even taken a photo? I, ha I have taken photos, but I've posted nothing basically. It's and, I, and I love and I really do love that about you. You're, you're truly about the farming and about about being a chef. Um, but let me ask you about just making the content work. I mean, you do a lot of um, cooking demo in your greenhouse and you have a lot of outdoor. I'd like to get a sense about how you think about your recipes and how they live on Instagram and how they live on TikTok. You, you really have a great sense with making 
recipes that actually people want to make. What, what is your purpose with your recipe development? So, so the book is, for me, like the seasons are what's most important. So I, I really believe, like, why are we flying ingredients from across the world when we grow such great things at home? You know, um, why do we need to eat asparagus in the middle of winter when it's so nice waiting for it in spring and it tastes way better than the stuff that's been flown for weeks? You know, it just doesn't make sense. So, so my, one of my big purposes of the recipes on Instagram is to try and encourage people to eat season, seasonally and, and show them just how delicious veg or whatever it is can be if you play with it and are clever. Um, I think a good thing, you know, I, I spent some time in restaurants and really learned about seasoning and playing with flavors, but ultimately left quite early. Yeah. So I'm, I still really just feel like a home cook. And the food that I make is just the food that I like to eat. You know, I'm out working with the animals in the wind and the rain and I come in to make a beautiful stew. You know, it's as, it's as simple as yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's super. It feels like you're not like you're not going out and buying like ring lights and stuff. It's all natural. It feels super real. And um, about the food, the culinary. That's why I cook in the greenhouse. Everyone's oh, always it's, asking. Because it's Just because it's light. Yeah, it's sun-soaked. Now, but your, your thread in the book, and you'll see when you pick up the book and when it's out, it, it, it has an Italian thread. I mean, there's frittata, there's scallops with anduja butter, there's lots of pastas. So I have to draw the comparison between you and Jamie Oliver because Jamie, you know, came from a, a culture of like of Italy, like that was his heart and his root. I, I'm not, I'm only drawing that comparison because of the, the cuisine, but you clearly love Italian cooking. W w why? I mean, I think just food is part of their soul, and I, I love that so much. Um, I love the way Europeans just live for sitting around the table with their family. I love that that's how they socialize. Um, their food is so simple. You know, you, 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 one of my favorite things is when you're taking the train through Italy, every single house that you go past has the tomatoes growing in the garden. You know, you can imagine them taking a bite and they spit out a seed and it just, it just yeah. turns into a plant. I, I love their relationship to food and how, you know, how we, we were talking the other night about you know, the different countries that the book's going to. And Anjali said, it would be so fun for it to go to Italy, but there's just no way. Yeah, they don't cool. need me to tell them how to cook. But there is a level of ingenuity with the recipe development and you know how to pare it down. And is that from your time at Noble Rot and your time just cooking professionally? Because when you look at the gram and you're seeing your actual process, it's very simple. The cooking is very simple. Well, we were talking the other day about St. John, which is the right. kind of epitome of... St. John. Has anyone been to St. John in London? Yeah, raise your hands. No. Yeah, look at that. We got the, the Londoners have been there. Truly the greatest experience. Anthony Bourdain's favorite restaurant. Yeah. Um, and he, he kind of, I think he put British food on the map. I call him the like godfather of British cuisine. Yeah. And he is all about a few good things on the plate. And the restaurant that I worked out, all the chefs had come from St. John. So I very much picked up that ethos. You know, you just need three good things. And also for people cooking at home, there's nothing worse than an ingredients list that's as long as the page. It's the worst. It's the worst. We, we try to avoid it and put book publishing. So when I was, you know, writing these recipes, I'd always think like, what really needs to be there? What, what makes that dish and what is just frazzle on top? Have you traveled through Italy? Have you done that? Yeah, that yeah, thing? lots, lots. Lots, lots, lots. Yeah. So never been to America, it's quite a long way, but you know, in, in England, like Europe is a stone's throw. So I've spent a lot of time in Italy, Spain, Greece, and that, and that really influences my cooking. Yeah. Jamie, do you, do you, do you guys like link up? Like, have you? We've chatted, we've chatted, yeah. but I've, I've never met him. Yeah. He's obviously a hero and 
he um, yeah, inspired me a lot back in the day, his early cookbook. I mean, coming to America and with this book and introducing yourself to American audience more, it seems like it's, it's the trajectory could be similar. And so, do, do you want to do TV here? Do you, do you have ambitions for that? Yeah, big, yeah, big time. I feel like... Um, I feel like I've got something that I want to say and that I want to show. Um, I feel like, you know, and New York's quite a funny place in that, you know, the, you're, you're so removed from the natural world, right? Um, <laughs> it feels like that living here, right? <laughs> it's so true. What Mel said. You know, Julie. people, people I, I posted that I was here and with their like beautiful video of the skyline and, uh, you know, an American flag fluttering the distance. Um, and I like a lot of messages being like, this is so bizarre. You know, you're like the epitome of the countryside and you know, what are you doing kind of by- You're betraying your fans. <laughs> what are you doing in an urban center? But with what's happening to the world and the food system, uh, you know, I think it's really important that we reconnect and we, we, we become part of the seasons again and the natural flow. And we, you know, think about where our food comes from. And I think farming and, cooking with ingredients that you've grown and kind of just showing that journey, not preaching about it, but just showing the, the things that have gone wrong, the joys, the things that have gone right is, the, is, is a really great way of doing that. It's, it's terrific editorially. It's just such a, the four seasons concept really works well. And it's a beautiful book. Uh, and not just saying that truly. So there's an epic tarragon roast chicken. When you put epic in front of a name on a recipe, it says something. Dude, that dish is so good. I mean, uh, for me, yeah. like a roast chicken is the epitome of the perfect Sunday lunch, which is a big cultural thing in England. You sit down and you have Sunday lunch. Um, and it is a roast chicken that just, it doesn't feel, you know, like tarragon and chicken is one of the world's best combinations. And this is yeah. cream, mustard, tarragon poured over a roasting chicken. And it, it, is, it is wild how good it is. It is epic. I love it. So when you're thinking about buying a chicken, I mean, we can't always kill our own chickens, Julius. We can't always kill our own chicken. So what, what, like, what's a tip to buying the right chicken? My philosophy is, is I, I don't think there's anything wrong with eating meat. Um, but I think the meat that you eat is really important. I believe if we all eat a bit less with the money that we save, we buy better when we do. And there, you know, the animals win because they're living better, longer lives. The farmers win because they're looking after animals in a nicer way. Nature wins because it's more in keeping with the, you know, holistic way of the world. When I go for a chicken, it's a damn good one. And eat every single bit, make a stock from the bones and enjoy it to its fullest. It's, I cannot agree more. I think eating less and better is key. And that recipe is a good place to start. Yeah, epic. Okay, so tartatan, an apricot tartatan. I feel we all need a little more tartatan in our lives. So but tell us a little bit about how you make a tartatan. So a, a tartatan is really cool because you've made like quiches and tarts, I think, before, and there's the whole faff of blind baking. You know, you've got to get the beans out, the paper, you roast it slow, you know, it's just... You cook it upside down. You just fry off some fruit or onions, a really good in tartata, chicory, yeah. endive. You can go fantastic. savory, yeah. truly, absolutely. You can put a bit of cheese in your pastry. You can do all sorts of clever things, but you you cook off whatever's the inside of the tart and then the pastry goes on top and you just blast it in the oven. And I have you watched, you know, Instagram loves a good apple tartata video. Yes, But it it's does. a bit of a faff, you know, this slow, <laughs> slow, slow, slow cooking of the apples and it, it's very chefy. So what I love about apricots is that you know, there's none of that faff. Um, they're the best fruit to cook. You know, I don't really love them raw. They're quite like papery and funny in the mouth, but when you cook them, they have this 
beautiful acidity that comes mm. through and you know with some really good like dark brown sugar it's just such a good fruit to cook with there's a there's a lot of apricot recipes in the book including a upside down sponge what's cool about these upside down things is obviously you you flip them out and then all those juices just leach yeah. into your sponge or your pastry or whatever looks great yeah. and you flip it and you you need the photo right? it's the aha moment i'm going to close by asking you about your your grandmother taught you to cook and lived in the countryside. Let's hear a little bit about what your grandmother taught you, a couple tenants or tips. So um, a lovely thing I, I like to always talk about with my granny is that when she died, she left me her notebooks from the kitchen. And um, on every single page, there was a rectangle for the table. And she wrote down since the 60s through till when she died, you know, 30 years of cooking, where everyone sat when she hosted a dinner party, what she cooked, what it cost. Back then it was in shillings and, you know, this old currency that, um, and, you know, we're talking crazy pudding. She'd have a mousse, a trifle, a tart, a cake for pudding. She'd write down, you know, if Mrs. Tisbury was wearing too short a dress or fl flirted with her husband. And it's this beautiful way of like looking back how food has evolved but also that ethos towards food where she was just so proud and cared about it. And I think she just taught me to, you know, the best thing about food is the sharing of it with people, you know, bringing people together, sitting down, the enjoying of it. And I think that's what I took away from it. I was in awe watching her cook and she was incredible at cooking, but really it was her ability to like bring the family together yeah. that, that I really loved. She was obsessed with offal. So we're before talking, it was trendy. Yeah, well before it was trendy, yes. And, you know, as a six-year-old, you'd be sitting at the table and you'd go, please, 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 please. And a, a tongue would be put in front of you uh -huh. or, or a plate of livers. And she was the kind of old school type where it was, you are not leaving until that plate is clean. And me and my poor brothers would be there just like for hours. Oh She'd gosh. just be doing the crossword, kind of smiling at us. She would torment you. And I was quite good at just straight down the hatch, but my, my stubborn brothers would be, yeah, for days. I love, let's go back to that journal because to me that really struck me when you told me that story before, like journaling all of your meals, but also like conversation points, what people were wearing. It's, it's so cool, it's right? It's truly what I would love to have done myself. And I've going forward, it would be great to do that. It's really smart. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, 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 you know, she'd have her travels in there too. So you could see when she, you know, she would, she'd been to Syria, Iran, you know, all these places that not many of us would dare to go to you now. And, and she'd bring back, you know, in a time where, you know, cooking was quite simple, but she was obsessed with spices. Um, you know, her food, uh, in Morocco, that you have this dish of called full madame, which is like baked beans in the morning. And, you know, when she came back from Morocco, we, we ate that for months. That's really... <laughs> yeah. And, and she's no longer with us, right? No, sadly not. She's sadly not. Very I've got a lovely, like, memento to her. She's very proud of me, of Julius. Yeah. Well, to end this conversation on this estate so we ask guests about their discerning taste so to close this interview here's a little fast fierce taste check yeah are you ready yeah okay yeah. your favorite london restaurant right now um kiln which yeah. is this uh fire cooked very spicy thai food that i just absolutely it's cheap like affordable you, yeah. the cooks are right there with these flaming pots it's all awesome i love it the best dessert tiramisu every time every time every time Okay, so lady fingers? Yeah, ladies' fingers soaked in lots of brandy and strong espresso yeah. with a very light layer of mascarpone whipped with eggs and masala wine, which is like sweet and spiced. And you keep doing the layers with cocoa powder in between and leave it in the fridge overnight. And it it's is like just an icebox cake at the best. Awesome. The best bread. I think, I think 
Focaccia? Yeah. Focaccia, lots and lots of rosemary, not on before it goes in the oven, but when it comes out and you let the like lasting heat gently perfume the rosemary rather than burn it in the oven. You got to get yourself the superiority burger downtown. Their focaccia, when they have it on the menu, oh man. Oh, really? Go there, please. Okay. As a shout. All right. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Just like I'm saying that with a straight face. Um, I love, in fact, it's an author I don't think you'll know. So he's called Rowley Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a cook called a mess, a book, cookbook called A Messy Business. Um, and it, it is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So what's the messy business? Like, like can you so he, he's like a legendary old school English chef, kind of like Fergus Henderson of St. John. I think he used to cook at the Conran shop, which is this amazing yeah. architectural shop in London. Um, and he, he, he's just old school English food. And it's a collection of all of his newspaper articles over the years, but just shot so, so beautifully. And every recipe has a essay on the page before. And, you know, we're talking like Mirabelle custard tarts and uh, it's just such good cooking. It's so great. Your favorite season? Spring. Okay. Yeah. So like summer's nice and you get to enjoy, um, you know, the sun and the, the heat and stuff. But spring for me on the farm is when the animals are giving birth when I'm planting my seeds, you know, in the soil and you know, the growing begins, the leaves come out, the, you know, the birds are so loud, the flowers are erupting, the grass It blows is up overnight. It's like the, there's like a day the in the spring that it just blows up. Yeah. yeah. And when, you, you know, the Dorset winter is six months of hell. We never came back to seafood. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you catch off the coast? So we, yeah, so we live like, it's a 15 minute drive. So on a, if the weather's nice in the evening and I've had a long day, like we just gun it to the coast yeah. uh, where there's this pub on the beach and you go grab a takeaway pint, walk down to the rocks and we'll fish for mackerel, which is the best fish there is. When it's, okay. when it's not fresh, it's awful. But when it's fresh, it blows your mind and sea bass. But yeah. you know, if we catch mackerel, we will, you just grab some like, driftwood off the beach and some seaweed start a fire and you just really yeah. fillet it on the sand and and cook it and whack it in a bap you ever do sashimi like raw yeah 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 um and it's what a peaceful like pastime <laughs> you can't really beat it this is a tough one your favorite there's in fact wait let me tell you one more thing about the mackerel fishing i, I was down the other day I was, you know, when the mackerel are in, you, you, you hook, you fish with five hooks on your line and you can literally cast, pull in five, cast, pull in five. And, you, and there's this fisherman next to me, you know, catching so many mackerel. I said, um, I said, what, what, like, what are you going to do with all these mackerel? He said, oh, I, I don't eat it. I don't eat it. I was like, what? what? You've got 50 mackerel on the beach, mind And he goes, no, it's for the dog. And he's a farmer just trying to feed his sheepdog. And the sheepdog's there on the coast just zipping up and down because what the mackerel are there for is whitebait. And they chase the whitebait onto the shore who just gets stuck on the rocks. And the sheepdog's just eating wow. whitebait. He doesn't know. You need, to, you need to bring the farmer some sashimi. Yeah, I know. Some raw mackerel. It's, it's brilliant. Okay, so this is hard. Your favorite vegetable? I've really fallen in love with Romanesco broccoli yeah. recently. You know that broccoli that does the crazy spiraling pattern? Um, I never really appreciated it before, but if you boil it and chuck it in a pan with, you know, some slow cooked onion, anchovy, rosemary, lemon, toss it together, it begins to break a little bit and you can toss that through pasta, have it with a steak. It's just got, you know, it's, it's cauliflower, but with that broccoli flavor. And I, I, I love the texture. It's so good. Last one, your favorite sandwich. Um, I mean, leftover roast chicken, basil, mayo, avo. 
on like real, I hate sandwiches in bread that's too tough and you take a bite and it just spills everywhere. Like I like fluffy white bread. What kind of mayonnaise? Oh, homemade olive oil mayo with a bit of garlic and lemon. Julius, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.